Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast. This is Marianne Sullivan, and my guest this week is Jay Schuster with the Richmond Law Group, and he's going to be telling us about two complaints that were filed against Tyson with the Federal Trade Commission regarding advertising that, according to these complaints, violates the FTC Act by deceiving consumers about Tyson's environmental practices, their animal welfare practices, and their labor practices, and also whether their chicken flesh is what anyone in the world would consider quote-unquote natural. Before we get to the interview, I'd like to take a moment to ask for your support for Our Hen House, which is the not-for-profit entity that produces this podcast, along with the Our Hen House podcast. And if you can help out, please go to ourhenhouse.org slash donate. There you can join our flock for $10 a month, or you can make a one-time donation in any amount that, that appeals to you. And of course, we know these are hard times, and and this is only meant for those who could afford it. But, you know, our supporters do know, I think, that they are helping not just to get some animal-friendly media for themselves, but for all the others who can't afford right now to contribute. And we are very, very grateful for that. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please check out the Our Hen House podcast, which I co-host along with Jasmine Singer. And a few recent episodes that might be of interest include episode 559, featuring HSUS's Peter Brandt talking about his new book, Indefensible, Adventures of a Farm Animal Protection Lawyer. Can't imagine that you want to, wouldn't want to check that out. And episode 558 featuring Gwenna Hunter on her experiences being a Black Lives Matter activist and an animal activist. Some great stuff over there of late. Okay, so let's get to this interview. Jay Schuster is an associate and the senior animal welfare legal fellow at Richmond Law Group. How many law firms do you know that have a senior animal welfare legal fellow? Jay has represented nonprofits and consumers in numerous cases against large food companies, including Tyson Foods, Kraft Heinz, and Unilever. And he will be joining me right after this. The Our Hen House podcast is brought to you in part by Forager Project. California crafted since 2013, Forager Project is an organic, plant-based, family-owned and operated food company creating innovative, delicious-tasting products sourced from nature's finest ingredients. That's nuts, seeds, ancient grains, and fruits and vegetables. Crafted by fellow foragers in its own unique, purpose-built creamery, the only 100% organic, plant-based facility of its kind, Forager Project's family of foods include totally organic and 100% vegan yogurts, nut milks, sour cream, kefirs, shakes, and butter. Let me tell you about Forager Project's vote campaign, which I'm especially excited about. Forager recently announced its commitment to help cultivate democracy. During the next month, Forager Project will be shifting packaging on its yogurts, kefirs, and milks to encourage consumers nationwide to get involved and vote this November. And they're launching a broader effort with organic and paid advertising to encourage everyone to vote this November 3rd. I'll be voting, and I sure hope you will be too. They want you to cultivate democracy and vote. So get involved at foragerproject.com vote and follow Forager Project at at Forager Project. Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast, Jay. Thank you for having me. Really excited to be here. I am excited to have you. I've been wanting to have you on for a while. And there's finally a case that, that we can, well, I'm not sure I'd call it a case. Uh, there are complaints before the FTC. What I usually do, we haven't done too many administrative 
matters. So I'm excited about it because it's a lot of what makes up animal law. And let's just get started with the basics because uh, I'm not sure everybody listening will know what the FTC Act is except kind of broadly and what the FTC does. So can you just give an idea of that? Sure. So the FTC is actually a law enforcement agency. And one of the key roles that the agency plays is with regards to the enforcement of consumer protection laws, in particular, the FTC Act, which prohibits deceptive advertising. And so in the same way that you may be familiar with certain state-level false advertising statutes that exist in every state, this is a federal act that only the FTC can enforce. And this is how national advertisements are policed by the federal government. So what are the standards for finding false advertising that would be in violation of the act? So one of the key standards that the FTC applies is the reasonable consumer standard, which is the same throughout uh, false advertising law. And advertisers are required to be able to substantiate all reasonable interpretations of their advertisements. And what kind of an ad, what would they find about an ad that might cause them problems? I mean, obviously it has to be false, but but what does that mean in the context of an FTC complaint? Yeah, it's a good question because it's uh, an inherently flexible standard. So we often distinguish both before the FTC and in our broader false advertising work between literally false claims and deceptive claims that may not be necessarily false. And so a literally false claim would be in the animal welfare context, if a company said their birds had outdoor access and they didn't have outdoor access. So that's an easy example. But a deceptive advertisement may be something that is not literally true or false, but connotes or leads consumers to believe that a certain thing about the products. And the way that the FTC and the courts assess whether a reasonable consumer may be misled by an ad that is deceptive but not necessarily false is through consumer perception evidence and in particular survey evidence that is done sometimes by experts and sometimes by organizations like consumer reports that try to ask consumers um, through like telephone surveys you know what do you think these terms mean and then they'll log you know what the reason what percentage of consumers thought about these different terms and if it's a substantial percentage of consumers, uh, then the FTC or a court uh, may determine that it is deceptive to a reasonable consumer. And if it's, uh, I, I know that materiality is also a factor, but how do they how do they determine that? I mean, somebody could decide that something is deceptive, but it could be about something they don't care about. Yeah. So thanks for bringing that up, and that's another important element. And that yeah, the misleading claim needs to be material to consumers, and. Again, the way that that's assessed is also through consumer surveys. And so, you know, there are certain types of claims that the FTC has just deemed to be per se material to consumers. For example, environmental benefit claims. The FTC has already acknowledged that consumers care about the environmental impacts of the products they buy. And so that's not really something that we would need to show. But for lots of types of claims, the FTC may not have a standard policy about them. And so, again, we would point to consumer survey research that shows a certain percentage of consumers look for these types of claims on their products. Yeah, that's really interesting because, I mean, I know that I care a whole lot. The way an animal is treated would be much more important to me. Well, maybe 
I am. I do care about environmental stuff, but a lot of people don't. (laughs) A lot of people really don't. It's so funny that they would, well, not funny, but that they would consider that automatically material. And yet animal welfare claims that you actually have to prove it. Well, at some point, maybe that'll be an automatic decision for the FTC, but I guess you're not there yet. Who Who can bring a false advertising complaint? Can anybody bring one? Yeah. So because the FTC is a law enforcement agency, There's no real question of standing here. What we're trying to do is just try to convince the FTC as a law enforcement agency to use its discretion to take action. And anybody can do that. But the FTC has made clear that they will assign greater or lesser weight to a given complaint depending on who is bringing the complaint. And so it really does matter to an extent who is bringing the claim. And you want to make sure that a credible organization is bringing the claim. And uh, also the FTC, though, does care a lot about complaints from consumers because directly from consumers, in part because they want to, I think they're naturally distrustful of what they may deem to be various, you know, interest groups that have an agenda other than protecting consumers. So with the example of animal welfare groups, they may come in with some natural skepticism to say, you know, you guys probably, you know, don't like these companies regardless and you think that, you know, all animal agriculture is cruel or something like that, and they may come in with some degree of skepticism. So organizations may have to work extra hard to to point to credible consumer survey evidence to show, no, this isn't just our organization's opinion. This is consumer, this reflects consumer perception. Whereas the FTC, you know, will look to, they may look to, look to, to complaints directly from consumers with, you know, a different lens. So what is the standard of review? How, I mean, I assume it's not Well, how strong does the evidence have to be in order to convince the FTC? Do they have a specific standard or do you just go in kind of blind and show them what evidence you have? It's a really good question because, again, in some ways, the bar here is higher than trying to convince a court that an advertisement is false. And in some ways, it it may be lower than a state false advertising case. The way that it is, you know, the FTC's policies make clear that, again, as I set forth before, any reasonable interpretation of a claim must be be substantiated by an advertiser. And that's a, a generally very flexible and broad standard. The problem, though, is that we don't uh, as a complainant, someone, a petitioner, someone that is filing a complaint before the FTC, we don't have to, it's not enough to convince the FTC that a given action is unlawful. We have to convince them that this is a case that is worth them prioritizing, using their mm-hmm. discretionary law enforcement resources to pursue. And so that is going to require a whole host of considerations, policy considerations, trying to convince the FTC, uh, among other things, that consumers really care about this. And it's the ads are very widespread and that there's real serious harm uh, going on here. Oh, that's interesting. That's a very different evaluation than deciding whether you want to litigate so what, when do you, I know, and we will talk about the fact that your FTC complaints here, which we are going to get to, I promise, <laughs> are intertwined with some litigation. But basically, why would you go to the FTC instead of suing? There are a lot of different reasons why uh, one might go to the FTC. Um, it really varies on a case-by-case basis. For one thing, there are no standing requirements, again, which, as we know, is animal law litigators. This is kind of a constant difficulty. Uh, Even when we think we have the better of the argument, it takes a lot of effort to demonstrate that your plaintiff has standing, whereas with the FTC, that's totally neither here nor there. 
We just need to convince the FTC to take action because we're not acting as a plaintiff. And then another reason is also the FTC has wider latitude with regards to the types of claims that it can actually pursue, where private rights of action under state false advertising statutes have largely been deemed to be preempted when we're talking about labels on meat and poultry products. The FTC is not similarly constrained, and they could take action on certain types of claims that might have a very low likelihood of success in a state court. So what are the potential remedies that you can get from them? So the FTCs can basically seek the same remedies that we would pursue in state law false advertising claim. And so they can compel the company to stop the advertisements. That's, you know, first and foremost. And also they can seek not damages, but but fines basically for the company's uh, misleading actions. Now, this may not be a fair question. So you can just tell me that you're not going to answer it. But how, I mean, it's not a fair question because you're now before them, but how good are they? How likely are you to be successful? Is, is this, is there, are they a really strong watchdog? Is there a lot of politics? Does it favor some kinds of issues over others? So you're correct. That's not a fair question, <laughs> but I'll do my best to answer it. I, I really, really doubt they're listening, but you never know. <laughs> no, but I, I actually think that the agency really is, it's, we're not, it's not the same as the USDA. It's really not where we, we can, I mean, I'm happy to say here that certain agencies in the federal government, like the USDA, are thoroughly captured by the industry. And I really don't think that's the case with the FTC. I think the problem with the FTC is just that they are a relatively small law enforcement agency with a relatively small staff that is tasked with policing all the advertisements in the entire country. And so I think that they have shown willingness to take aggressive stances on certain types of ads, but I think that they are limited in their ability to take action on every complaint, even ones where I think they would agree, you know, at least privately, that the the underlying conduct is unlawful and that you know, in an ideal world, they would take action against it. But the, the fundamental problem is that they are subject to, I want to say political and, and broad, you know, popular opinion about you know, trying to, when they're trying to prioritize what cases they're going to pursue. And just to give you an example, with COVID-19, there's been a massive rise of false advertising claims regarding, you know, cure-alls that different, you know, uh, types of medicinal type products that are advertising themselves as having, you know, providing protection from COVID. And like bleach. <laughs> sh- sure. <laughs> um, I haven't seen that one, the FTC take action against the Trump administration yet. <laughs> and so they're, they're frankly already extremely uh, spread thin working on what is, you know, what they view as being a very timely, you know, issue. And so that's, that's kind of what we're up against here. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily corruption, but more just limited resources. I know there was a recent comment from the FTC commissioner about greenwashing and and wanting to go after greenwashing. Has that had an impact on yours or others' decisions, whether to bring something to them? It has encouraged us to bring more cases. It's too early for us to say whether that's going to affect the actual resolution of our particular cases, but it does seem that the FTC is moving in a promising direction and is being is, has been willing to take bolder and bolder action against greenwashing claims. Interesting. So, all right, we can get to the we can get to your actual cases now. There are two cases, but I'm going to kind of go through them together. So, you've made two separate complaints, and they're both against Tyson and. 
They have different complainants and they're focusing on different subject areas, but obviously both about animal agriculture and both about chicken agriculture. Well, chicken agriculture, is that a term? And so one focuses kind of generally on animal welfare and environmental concerns, and the other focuses on labor issues. So there are a lot of facts here and a lot of allegations, and hopefully you can just cherry pick a few of the most compelling ones in each subject area as we go through them. Let's first focus on the allegations in the animal environmental complaint. First of all, who are the complainants here? So the complainants in that matter are animal equality, Food and Water Watch, and Organic Consumers Association, which you may be able to tell from the names generally, the types of issues they work on. Right. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with them, they, you know, these are pretty... Uh, I assume these fit into your goal to have legitimate groups bringing these complaints. Now, let's let's take some of the statements that your clients say violate the FTC Act. And there's there's some pretty outrageous stuff here, I've got to say. I You know, I don't look at chicken advertising all that much. And first of all, maybe we should define which of Tyson's chickens this applies to. There are particular, you know, I don't do a lot of chicken shopping. So um, there are particular brands of Tyson chickens. Is that right? And does this apply to some of them or all of them or ones they charge more money for or or what? So it's a mix. Um, the this complaint, which I don't, which we generally refer to as the natural FTC complaint that we filed against Tyson, because it implicates their natural raising claims. This deals with all Tyson brand chicken products. So anything that actually has the word Tyson on it, that would fall within the scope of this complaint. And that's because the representations are made alongside materials that mention the word the word Tyson. Okay. Now, does Tyson also sell like generic chicken? Yeah. So Tyson is the largest chicken producer in the country, and it sells a wide variety of products. And some of them don't say Tyson anywhere mm -hmm. on the packaging okay. or, or elsewhere. But there is one brand here that we have included, aside from just Tyson brand products in this complaint, which is Tyson's nature-raised uh, chicken line which does not, yeah, doesn't say Tyson anywhere on the packaging, except maybe in some very fine print. It's, it's, it's all a very weird business, I have to say. Um, but all right, you mentioned the word natural. I know the complaints from the animal rights community about the use of the word natural have been going on for a long time. And pretty much everyone believes that nothing Tyson does could possibly deserve this word. But what is Tyson? Can you give us a flavor, so to speak? Sorry, that's so hard. I didn't mean to make that terrible. Uh, would I call it a joke anyway? But can you, can you give us an idea of what kind of representations Tyson is making about the naturalness of their um, dead birds? Yeah. So, it depends on the product line, but with respect to, and, and again, I'll just differentiate between the Tyson brand products and the nature-raised products. With the Tyson brand products, they make claims like 100% all-natural and perfectly all-natural. And I think they may even have one other ad that says natural foods fresh from the farm. And then with respect to the nature-raised products, well, they call their products nature raised uh, and use other language along those lines and talk about naturally raised uh, chickens. Now, I think that most people listening to this probably have some idea of what is wrong with, with those claims and what kind of evidence exists that contradicts their representations. But what have you said to the FTC that 
is your position of, of why we should not be calling what Tyson does to these birds natural or nature raised or whatever? What kind of evidence are you are you presenting? So first and foremost, our position is along the lines you described, Marianne, that everything in this entire production process, there's nothing natural about it. It is the prime example of industrial, unnatural poultry production from start to finish. The chickens are raised in massive warehouses where they have no access to the outdoors for their entire lives. They may be administered various drugs, including antibiotics and other antiparasitic drugs at these facilities. They are commonly found by the USDA to be contaminated with antibiotic-resistant pathogens, sometimes literal superbugs that are resistant to numerous different antibiotics. And I could keep going, but I think those are some of the kind of clearest examples. They use uh, chemicals like bleach and parasitic acid to disinfect the chickens that are on the slaughter line. And it just goes on and on. So your your arguments here focus mainly on on contaminants or, or the nature of the product itself and not so much on the on whether they were nature raised, like raised like a normal chick would be raised by a, a mother chicken. Is that right? Well it's both. It's both. So we do talk about, as I was saying before, the the raising of the animals being unnatural, in particular, the fact that they have no outdoor access. And that's one of the most common consumer associations with the term all natural with respect to raising claims. At a bare minimum, consumers think, well, sure, the animals must have had access to the outdoors. Yeah, especially since, you know, everybody's grown up with all of those pictures in their heads of barnyard animals. So what evidence do you present that these claims, specifically about the word natural, are material to consumers? You know, it's kind of a funny issue because why would they use it if it wasn't material to consumers? I mean, it's advertising, but you do have to establish that it does matter to consumers, don't you? Yeah, we often, you know, think that to ourselves, but in a way that argument kind of proves too much because companies also sometimes advertise their products as being the best, right? And everybody, at least we know in the legal world, that that's, you know, fundamentally what we call puffery, which is a non-actionable claim that at least we say consumers don't rely on. So we do have to to show that the mere the mere fact that a company puts uh, a statement on their packaging or their advertisements, that's not enough. And so what we, what we use to show that it's material is what I was saying before, consumer perception evidence. And with the term natural, the evidence is just overwhelming. There are so many consumer perception studies that show consumers really care about natural products, buying natural products. And these companies know that, and that's why they're marketing. Even, you know, puffery arguments have always bothered me to some extent because it it might not be, and, and tell me if this is a factor in the law, it might not be literally true that your product is, say, the best, but that doesn't mean using that term isn't influencing consumers. It, it, it's still a brag about your product. And while they might not think it's literally true, they might think it's close to true or might think it, it's as good as everything else. So do you think that puffery law goes a little too far in saying they, they're just saying this, nobody would believe it? I would say it really depends on the jurisdiction, but I will say and in almost every jurisdiction, there are certain claims that will maybe deemed to be puffery that I don't think should be. But I think as a concept, it is probably useful that we allow some level of flexibility for advertisers to make totally opinion-based claims like best and better. I don't really see a real 
need to police those claims when they're totally divorced from any specifics about a product. I think you get into trouble, though, when they start saying things like, we have the best animal welfare practices or the best environmental practices or anything specific. That seems like consumers may actually rely on that in a way to a much greater extent than they would rely on a claim that a product is just best, period. So this complaint also involves environmental claims that uh, Tyson is making. And you had mentioned that these seem to be particularly salient with the FTC. So what is Tyson representing? So it depends on the various products that they that they sell. So again, the nature raised products, that specifically they use the word uh, sustainably sourced or sustainably farmed on their website. And then the Tyson ads use the word like um, environmental and environmentally sustainable in various places on their website or variations of words like that. So, it, I mean, sustainable is a pretty strong word. Uh, what evidence do you have that contradicts their representations that their products are sustainable? I imagine most people listening to this are laughing right now because this is one incredibly unsustainable product. But what kind of things do you present to the agency? So, yeah, we there really is, again, like such a long list of things that we could point to. But we've always tried to start in conveying that the fact that industrial chicken production is inherently unsustainable and that we don't even have to get into mm. the specifics of Tyson before we can make clear that there is nothing remotely sustainable about it, that the environmental damage from industrial agriculture of which Tyson is kind of a prime example of representing industry practices, um, it's just inherently unsustainable. But beyond that, um, you know, we do supplement that with specific claims about the company related to records, for example, from the ECHO database, which is an EPA database that keeps track of violations of various environmental permits and environmental laws. And we can point to, you know, multiple violations of the company. We can point to reports from consumer watchdog agencies or environmental watchdog uh, organizations that refer to Tyson as being like the worst polluter in the entire country. We can point to the fact that their wastewater discharge, even when it is technically in compliance with environmental laws, poses massive you know, environmental uh, hazards, including the through the transmission of antibiotic-resistant pathogens that are detected in the plant, which numerous studies show are not neutralized through the wastewater treatment process. So these uh, you know, superbugs are literally being pumped out into the environment. But really, the list goes on and on. And let's get to the animal welfare standards, because that's probably the area that people are most interested in. What does Tyson represent? About, how, how can they possibly make representations about their animal welfare? So, yeah, I mean, it does. Uh, I, it is hard to believe that they're so brazen and making claims that seem so demonstrably false. You know, one of the things they claim is that they raise healthy chickens. And it's just, there's so much evidence from so many scientific studies that just show the breeds of chickens that they use are, even in the best of circumstances, inherently unhealthy. That they're using these massive, you know, chicken breeds that are so large uh, mm-hmm. that they suffer from all sorts of diseases, no matter how well that that you care for them or how, you know, even if nobody, even if everything goes according to plan, they're still going to suffer immensely and not be able to move or exercise any kind of natural behaviors. They claim that they are committed to offering consumers the most humanely raised food possible. Wow. 
That's strong. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so it's and it's just unfathomable to me when the company itself has acknowledged uh, has actually called out other companies that utilize the same standards as Tyson and said you can't call your chickens humanely raised because you're just using bare minimum industry standards. And there's just no debate about some of these facts. And so they are really brazen and, and even in making claims um, like that that they've explicitly tried to hold their competitors accountable for making. So those are the National Chicken Council standards yes, that so you're that, talking about? Like, and so what's happened here is that Tyson has, has attacked other companies for claiming that their chickens are raised in a humane manner when all they are is raised according to the pitiful, totally pitiful National Chicken Council standards, and then they're doing the exact same thing? Exactly. Wow. So they literally have taken, uh, they, they filed complaints with the USDA and another body called the National Advertising Division, where they specifically said that using humanely raised claims is misleading for a company to, to do if they are just adhering to standard industry practices. And yet, that is exactly what Tyson is doing here. God, the world gets crazier and crazier every day. That's a really crazy claim. And... So obviously, we know that you have loads of evidence to contradict these representations. I, I assume you can bring in all of the undercover work that, that animal rights groups done have done. Is that right? And are there other ways to show that, that these are not... What, what was the claim? These are not like... <laughs> the most humanely <laughs> raised most chickens human. in the world. <laughs> no, that was what I was remembering. And then I thought, no, they couldn't have said that. <laughs> All well, right. it's funny the way that they, you know, will try to rationalize it. They'll say, oh, well, we just said we're committed to offering it to consumers. We're not oh, saying we're yeah. actually doing it. Yeah, that's interesting. How does that play? Like that, that seems like inherently deceptive to me. But but does the agency also consider saying things like we're committed to doing this and then not doing it to be problematic? It's It's obviously not even literally true because they're clearly not committed. But but. Is, does that change the nature of how false this advertising is? So I'm not aware of any specific FTC policy addressing the use of those type of types of terms. But I will say there, as a general matter, certain courts have explicitly held that you can't just slap the word committed to on a statement and then say that it's inherently, mm -hmm. you know, can't be misleading to consumers and that we're still going to hold you accountable for that. And other courts have tended the opposite direction and have wanted to say, oh, well, maybe consumers can't rely on that because it's, you know, too, it's, they, they will call it, oh, it's just an aspirational claim. And so, yeah, there's, there's a debate in the courts about whether these claims are actually aspirational and whether these claims can actually be, you know, relied upon by consumers and actionable in, in court. But yeah, how the FTC will come down on that is actually, I'm not positive. Yeah, it seems to me they can't even prove that it's their aspiration to do this since they're not doing anything to accomplish it. Exactly. No, that's a key point. Um, and that, that's what some of the courts have said, that you need to at least be able to show. And that's actually what the NAD has said, National Advertising Division, um, which I could explain, provide some further context, I suppose, so that'd be helpful. But that's, that's what they have held, is that at a bare minimum, you still need to show that you actually are genuinely committed to offering consumers the most humanely raised food possible. And you can't point to any evidence showing that at any time in the future, you're going to be actually implementing the highest animal welfare standards. Well, then that claim is literally false. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. that makes sense. All right. So finally, perhaps what's the most important issue and one that we're always concerned about 
how do you prove that people care? How do you prove that animal welfare claims are material to consumers, which, of course, you also have to prove, not just they're lying, but that it matters to consumers? Yeah. So if I can just quickly go back, because I don't think I fully answered your prior question, which was whether we rely on the animal cruelty investigations. Oh, right, 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 right. And, and, and so I just want to quickly touch on that and say, as with kind of all these various categories, our first goal is always to show that inherently, just if we just look at the standard industry practice, if we look at Tyson's, you know, business as usual practices, we can look at the, according to Tyson itself, they adhere to these standards. And we will always want to start by showing these standards themselves, the ideal for Tyson is still inhumane and or unsustainable, it may be. And then on top of that, all of these undercover investigations show that even beyond these standard industry practices, the company is, is engaging in inhumane treatment. Oh, I love that approach. I love the approach of, of saying it's not just with what all of these companies have actually done, as we can see, but but this this is an inherently inhumane industry. Yeah, that's such an important factor to be able to establish. Right. But right. there's no factual dispute about what their practices even are, yeah. uh, at least yeah. with respect to certain things. And then so to your next question about the how do we know that these claims are misleading or how do we prove them? Again, uh, it's just back to consumer survey evidence. And so there are numerous, numerous consumer surveys on the questions of how do consumers perceive the terms, terms like humanely raised. And I should say there are several of them, but it's still, we would like to see a lot more of these out there. But we point to the ones that do exist and which do show that consumers think that these terms have concrete definitions and that they expect certain things from companies that are making these types of claims. And among other things, you know, that the animals are not subject to extremely, you know, torturous conditions uh, like we've outlined here. And is that also how you prove that it's material that you just ask people? Is that, is that primarily through survey evidence? Yeah. And that there's actually a a much larger body of evidence is supporting. Um, there's just way there's uh, there's probably dozens of consumer surveys showing that consumers care about that the fact that the animals used in their products are treated humanely. And there's fewer surveys though about what consumers actually think that means. What about the fact that, well, I, I guess this is something I was going to get into later, but how do we know that consumers have even seen these claims? Are they mostly on the website? Are they on the packages? Is it is it on the ads? Where are they? Yeah, so it's a really good question. It's, they're located in a in a variety of places: the website, the packaging, on YouTube videos, Facebook, Twitter, etc. And there's obviously no way that every consumer sees all of these ads, with the exception of the the stuff that's actually on the label. But there's no need to show that every consumer sees every ad. The key question really that, you know, the FTC is going to want to look at is, are these claims made in, in national advertisements? And are, are people seeing these claims at all? And if they're on, you know, they're, the, the FTC, you know, has made clear that claims on, on a website can still be misleading. And so it's enough that if we can point to them on, you know, publicly accessible websites and social media, et cetera. Yeah, one would assume that if if they didn't think they were reaching some consumers and changing their mind, they wouldn't be doing it. Exactly. And we have, um, we found acknowledgments from various companies. I can't remember if Tyson was one of them where, you know, most big meat companies, they issue uh, these sustainability reports and they talk a lot about the importance of these claims to consumers. And they talk about how the reports themselves and their websites play a key role in leading consumers to 
to buy their products and to have trust in the company's brand. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I mentioned that there's a second complaint, and I, I just like to go through these allegations. And this has more to do with labor issues, and which, you know, this must have suddenly blown up into a huge issue because of COVID. But who are, the complainants are slightly different here, which makes sense since it would be different advocacy groups. Is that right? That's right. So here we have uh, a new group that we haven't talked about yet uh, called Venceremos. And they are a worker advocacy organization, as well as Food and Water Watch, who we already discussed, was a petitioner in the prior complaint. And I understand that one of the claims they make, which just, it's really, it's insane, the way this term has been thrown around. One of the claims they made that you're contesting is that these chickens are raised on independent family farms. What is that? Is that right? And exactly what do they say that, you know, like to create in consumers' minds this obvious vision of like like a family of four with 12 chickens in their yard. What is it that they say? Yeah, so they use the, the terms independent poultry farmers, and they also use the term family farmers. And they use these terms sometimes in conjunction with each other, you know, where they will refer to independent family farmers. And actually, even though the image that consumers get from the term family farms is probably much more benign than it is, isn't it true that a lot of contract growers are kind of family farms, that, that they, they do have family farms and, and they just have these huge, huge, huge factory farm chicken sheds on their property? Yeah, so it is true that many, in fact, I believe most chicken farms are owned by a family. They are family businesses, but they are nothing at all like what consumers believe family farms are. And, and so, you know, as you were saying, a single family farm could have millions of chickens on them. And they're certainly, you know, not at all what consumers think, as you were saying, they have a few, you know, small barn full of chickens. Here we're talking about massive warehouses, sometimes spread across multiple parcels of land. Most uh, sometimes, you know, yeah, it could be a dozen different chicken houses, you know, with 100,000 birds each in them. And none of the animals are getting anything remotely resembling individualized care. And they're truly, you know, industrial facilities where crucially, Every element of the production process to the type of feed that's used, to the temperature of the barns, to every single thing that the farmer does every day is going to be mandated and controlled by the grower, in this case, Tyson Foods itself. And so even if there was any doubt at all about whether the term family farm was an appropriate uh, term to describe a facility like this, the fact that it would be independent, it really has no remote basis in reality. Given that it's kind of literally true, but you contend that it creates a very false impression, how do you litigate that? Yeah, so basically false advertising law across the board recognizes that many claims that may be literally true are still deceptive. And that's true whether we're before the FTC or whether we're in in state court or federal court. It's the, the same across the board. I mean, a core principle of the law is that the company has to avoid making false claims, but they also have to avoid making true but deceptive claims. And and so that that's really how we would argue it. We would say both that they're, you know, these claims are not true, but even if you were to say, okay, they are true, it's still misleading to consumers. And cons- the key question, again, what we always come back to is what do reasonable consumers believe? And, and not just what do all reasonable consumers believe, 
what do, do, the question is if some reasonable consumers believe that family farms are actually operate in ways that resemble you know that, that are smaller than industrial farms if some reasonable consumers contrast the term family farm with these industrial operations that are controlled by tyson then that's all we need to be able to show now the the final claim here that i i picked out and wanted to to talk about was the safe work environment which is just hilarious in a very tragic way and did you devise all these claims prior to covid and and did you have to add that in because i know there are plenty of other things that are not safe about these work environments but did covid just kind of come about and 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 you had to refigure this com- claim or was it was it one of the motivating factors for bringing it? So I will just say that we would have brought this claim regardless of whether COVID happened. Um, that this claim, you know, workers' rights issues, worker safety has been an issue long before COVID. And they were claiming that their workers were working in safe environments long before COVID. And it was never true. And so this is an issue in general that we wanted to pursue for a very long time. It's not just Tyson, but lots of other industrial uh, chicken producers are making these types of worker safety claims that have no basis in fact, where again, uh, getting back to this theme that I've been repeating, we always try to show that the inherent production practices, even under normal conditions, are they're inherently harmful to workers. That you have these, even when everything is going according to plan, the, the extremely rapid speed that workers are expected to to produce chickens at is extremely destructive to their bodies it really it causes them to get all sorts of repetitive motion injuries and you can just look the statistics um in the industry is one of the most it's long been one of the most dangerous industries for somebody to work in where people you know having to work at these rapid speeds are often you know being subject to real serious injuries yeah, and of course now we're talking about exposure to serious illness, and there has so been so much in the press about what workers in these plants have gone through, and a lot of the focus has been on this idea that we have to feed America, um, and apparently we have to feed them dead birds, and that this is unavoidable. Do you also bring in evidence that that it would be possible to have these slaughter plants and avoid having your employees? catch COVID or other infectious diseases if they if they would just put more money into building them more uh, and, and slow down the line and make the chicken more expensive. Is that is that a, a, a valid argument? Yeah. Because they're always saying this it's unavoidable. This is just how it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it is a valid argument. And even if you couldn't completely stop any incidents of COVID at your plants, some plants have, some companies and some plants have had far more severe outbreaks than others. And there's a pattern where Tyson in particular has had some of the most significant outbreaks of any poultry producers in the country. And we can also point to the fact that they have higher, faster line speeds in some of their plants than other plants have throughout the country. And so there's not just one way to produce poultry. And and certainly, you know, the it doesn't matter even if they were doing producing their product, it, an inherently dangerous product, as safely as they possibly could be doing it. That still may not be enough to justify their claims if there are other types of products that are actually uh, safe in comparison. So has this issue become much more salient as people have become much more aware of how workers are, are existing in these plans. So do you think this has become more material to consumers as a result of all this publicity? 
Yeah, I absolutely do. And I think it's telling that in in our work recently, it's been very difficult to get any kind of uh, media attention on anything that we're doing. And this is one of the few things we've worked on where we actually did get some significant media attention. And that's because the public is really attuned to these issues now of worker safety in a way that really takes precedence over almost everything else and, and certainly more than it ever has in the past. Yeah, it took quite a bit to get slaughterhouses in the news, but they did finally get it. Of course, they didn't get, they weren't called slaughterhouses. They were called meat plants, but still they ended up in the news a lot this year. And I think consumer awareness is a lot higher. All right, let's get to some of their arguments in opposition, um, which I thought were were remarkably weak. Am, am I right? I mean, they, they didn't seem to argue at all on the merits. Am I missing something? They, they, most of their arguments seem to be procedural. I think that's exactly right. And I think that is almost always how these cases go, whether they're before the FTC or otherwise, uh, you know, in state court or, or what have you. And that's because there's really not that much they could do when you're talking about antibiotic resistant superbugs or, you know, chickens being boiled alive. I mean, it is a really ugly picture. And that even when in certain cases where a company, maybe we get one of the facts slightly off. I mean, what are they going to, you know, it's, they're really not in a good position to say, oh, um, we do this one little thing, you know, differently before we uh, keep them inside for their entire lives and never let them step foot outside. And, you know, the, the truth of the matter, there's just no way they could kind of correct our facts without just drawing further attention to how horrific their production practices are. And so always they're, I think, rightly uh, aware that their, their strong arguments are going to be more on procedural issues to avoid any real discussion or thought uh, given to the, the core, the, to the merits. That's really fascinating. Is that true in other, I mean, is this particularly true when you're talking about factory farming and slaughterhouses, or is this true across the board in, in false advertising cases that they just don't really want to argue, well, it's not false. Like that seems like the big issue, whether it actually is false or not. Yeah. And they just avoid it. I do think that this is generally true that companies would much rather fight on the legal procedure issues, which tend to be more favorable to defendants than the kind of merits issues, which, you know, again, we're picking our we're picking our, our defendants and picking the issues of and the course, claims yeah. to find the worst ones. And so oftentimes, yeah, the best they can do is argue in the procedure. And so I think that's common across the board. That being said, I do notice a difference from case to case where if a company really thinks they have a strong argument for saying, look, this is just objectively not true, what these plaintiffs are claiming about our practices, and we have strong evidence showing that we don't do the thing they're accusing us of, they will take advantage of that. Um, it's just, I think, especially in these cases where they really do not want to, to go there at all. So one of their arguments is that there's ongoing litigation currently pending that involves these issues, which is also litigation that you are involved in. And can you give us an idea both of what that litigation is about and why they are wrong that that matters and whether you or why you believe that they're wrong and that matters as to whether you can bring these FTC complaints? Yeah, I actually think this is their weakest argument by far. And that's basically they're here. They're relying on what's called a private controversy, you know, exception to the FTC's jurisdiction. And what that says is if a matter is already a subject of private controversy and it is not a matter of general public significance, 
then we won't take action. And that is clearly not the case here. And so the, the, the actual private controversy in this matter is, yes, we do have a state false advertising case that deals with certain of the issues that we've brought before the FTC, not all of them. So, for example, the family farming claims, the labor claims, and also the natural claims. None of those claims are part of our, our litigation in the District of Columbia. But that case is, is arguing that the animal welfare claims and the environmental claims violate the D.C. Consumer Protection Procedures Act, which is just the state false advertising law in, in D.C. And, and so there is overlap with respect to certain of the claims on animal welfare and the environment, but not um, the natural claims or the labor claims. And what, what we are showing, what we have argued, I think it's extremely straightforward, is that the private controversy exception only applies when you're talking about matters that are only private controversies and not matters of public interest. And here is very clear that, you know, when Tyson's, you know, uh, workers' rights violations have been, you know, literally in the front page of the news, and these other matters which we've shown are extremely important to consumers through numerous consumer surveys, this is not a, a solely a private controversy. It is a matter of public interest. And we have alleged that both before the FTC and in our DC litigation. That's the whole point is that this is affecting the public and it needs to stop. Yeah, it seems this. Uh, you're right. This seems to me like an incredibly weak argument because that D.C. law is specifically allowing individual plaintiffs uh, to to kind of represent the public in in and act as these uh, kind of private attorneys general. Like, how could you argue that that's a private claim? <laughs> it doesn't. It makes no sense at all. You're not arguing just that I was defrauded. You're arguing that everyone else is being defrauded too. It seems the. I don't even understand this argument. To tell you the truth. Um, yeah, I think you do actually, <laughs> and I think you you put it very well. Well, I hope they understand it the same way I do. Do you want to say anything more about that litigation? How it differs and where you are in it, and perhaps explain why you did take these two routes of, of bringing litigation and bringing the FTC complaint? Well, we think that it is a matter of public interest that the government should get involved in, and that it should not just fall upon private organizations to hold companies accountable that are making you know national advertisements that are misleading to millions of consumers. And I guess the key, you know, differences I've already explained uh, between the FTC, the actions before the FTC and litigation. And I'll just say, you know, we are dealing with various issues at the right now where we just finished briefing the motion to dismiss in that case. Now, a year after the case was filed because they removed the case and then we got the case remanded back down to D.C. But there are basically a variety of variables uh, it's, uh, in the litigation that are just not um they're not relevant to an FTC complaint. And so those are some of the key differences. Whereas, you know, for example, we don't have to argue standing and we don't it before the FTC and we can address issues, uh, crucially that we would not have addressed through litigation, like things that are on the label where, where we, we understand that there is a strong argument that such claims would be preempted and we don't want to muddy the waters of our litigation by uh, talking about label claims. And so we can focus on that before the FTC. And yeah, I think that answers the question. So that also relates to the next question, I and maybe you've already answered it, but one of Tyson's arguments is that the word natural has been approved by the USDA for labeling, 
which, you know, is pretty disgusting, I have to say. But aside from that fact, which isn't really relevant, what I think, why, if, if the USDA has approved that word for labeling, is it still potentially false advertising to use it? So that's a really good question. And here, I, I think it's probably necessary at this point to provide a little bit more explanation about this NAD body that I keep referring to. And, and so... Is that part of the... Am I right that that's part of the Better Business Bureau? So honestly, they have gone through a lot of changes okay. in the actual corporate structure. I think it is now technically called, it's part of BBB National Programs, which I think is now separate, but it, it used to be part of the Better Business Bureau. And the core function is, you know, uh, is very closely related to the Better Business Bureau's function, uh, which in particular here is about ensuring that it's the National Advertising Division, and their function is to ensure that national advertisements are not false or misleading to consumers. And it is a private body, just like the Better Business Bureau. It's not a government body. It is a self-regulatory body, meaning that the companies that go before go before and proceedings at NAD are doing so voluntarily. But while that is the case, it is extremely authoritative and respected throughout the entire industry of all, you know, any kind of retail uh, consumer goods. And it's also, most importantly, extremely respected by the FTC, where the FTC, where ordinarily they might not be willing to, you know, they may only take a action on a small minority of complaints that are made to it. They take action. They take, they look at every, any matter that gets referred to them by the NAD extremely seriously. And they basically, I think, view the NAD as like a mini FTC. And so the reason why I brought up the NAD again here is that they do have essentially a body of law that touches on a variety of issues that F the FTC has not publicly weighed in on, but it may provide a roadmap for how the FTC is going to want to treat, look at these issues. And one of these areas that is extremely important to what we do and what we're doing before the FTC is how the NAD has decided to treat label claims that are approved by the USDA. And basically what the NAD has decided is that they are not going to defer to label claims that are approved by the USDA on an ad hoc basis. So in, in particular, the NAD policy says we will not review claims that have been expressly approved or mandated by a statute or by regulation. But the claims at issue here, including the natural claims, they've never been approved or mandated by any statute or any regulation. There are USDA guidelines that did not go through any formal notice and comment process and are not binding regulations, but they're just guidelines that the, that the agency has regarding the use of natural claims. And so we um, you know, would argue that these type of claims are here are no different from other claims that NAD has decided it is going to review as being uh, a violation or at least being uh, misleading to consumers. And what they've found, the NAD, is that meat companies are not able to produce any evidence that these claims are subject to any real scrutiny. They're not able to 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 meat companies aren't able to point to any consumer protection uh, studies that the that the USDA looked at or approved. And they basically said, look, wow. we're not going to just defer to the USDA if you can't show us that the USDA looked at the type of evidence that we think is you need to look at in order to determine whether a claim is misleading. And so we would just say, yeah, the FTC, uh, we hope, will apply the same uh, reasoning here. That is crazy. Basically, the NAD has said, 
the USDA actually is doing such a terrible job at approving this label that we're going to ignore it because they don't even they don't even evaluate it. Is that right? I would say that, you know, the way that they would probably want to phrase it is that the advertiser in, in that specific case did not demonstrate that the USDA did those things. All right. and, but I do think that given what we know about how the industry operates, they, they will probably come to that determination in every case because they're not going to be able to, no, no advertiser is going to be able to point to any kind of review of that, that kind done by USDA. Yeah, because didn't happen. Exactly. Um, all right. Is there anything more to say about that issue or about the responses that they made to your your natural claims and which, you know, what by which I would include the environmental and the animal welfare too? Did I miss anything? The only thing I might add is that there is an informal like policy agreement between different agencies about who's going to regulate what types of advertisements. And the FTC has said that they will treat the USDA similarly to how they treat the FDA in certain respects. But these are, you know, these are not binding regulations. But in general, the FTC has said, we will want to defer to these other uh, agencies that regulate claims on food when it comes to certain types of claims. And what we've argued is that these do not fall into that category, it's particular health claims where they said, look, the FDA knows a lot more about, you know, the health of products than we do. We don't think that applies at all here. And we think any the basically the reasons why the FTC might want to defer to other agencies with respect to certain claims in certain places don't apply at all uh, when we're talking about advertisements approved by, a, you know, a division of the USDA whose goal is not to protect uh, consumer health, but instead is to market as many meat products as possible. And that basically they did not, uh, there's no reason to, for the FTC to, to provide any deference to the USDA's approval here. Okay. So on, on health, I mean, it only makes sense. The FTC should defer to, I mean, if everything worked properly and made sense that the FTC, which you mentioned is a small agency, just can't evaluate all of these claims on its own. And if another agency with expertise has evaluated it, they should be able to rely on them, but they're saying we, it, except in specific matters of, of health and nutrition, we can't rely on them. That's that is our position. Okay, okay, I get it. I think. All right, let's talk about the labor claims then as well. I believe that the Tyson argues that these complaints have to be made to OSHA, not to the FTC. So that may seem obvious why that is wrong, but can you explain why? This is another one of these truly, uh, <laughs> I don't want to be overly critical here, but yeah, it is. It, it, it does make you wonder whether you're understanding the argument properly, because it seems quite obvious as to why it is false. And that essentially is because the OSHA does not regulate advertising. That's just not what they do. <laughs> yeah. They have at no point did OSHA ever say, what do consumers think of Tyson's ads? That never happened. They never said at any point, what do consumers think the word safe work, the phrase safe working environment means in the context of all these other statements the company makes? It just doesn't happen. Um, they make sure that a company meets minimum st safety requirements that apply equally across the board to all companies. And so, especially in light of our argument that these, the implication of these types of special claims makes it seem that comparatively, Tyson is exceeding just bare minimum legal requirements, it really makes no sense to say, well, 
uh, OSHA didn't say we're not allowed to you know make these claims or that what's, this claim should be brought before OSHA. There's no dispute that the F- this is what the FTC does. They are the federal government experts that regulate advertising. They are the ones who are trained to assess consumer perception of advertisements and materiality and take enforcement action here, uh, not OSHA. And so that's really, uh, simply put, I think what the, just that's not what OSHA does at all. That's the argument. That I, I think you could just say that's not what OSHA does at all. Yeah. That pretty much sums it up. Yeah, it, and I think we might have covered some of their um, positions on some of their responses. Like, like we talked before about the fact that their language, like we are committed to or we work hard to, can still be violative of the statute. So, but is there anything else about their responses to the um, to the labor claims that you want to bring up? Um, I don't think so. I think that that covers it. Okay, great. And so what happens next? So what happens next is really up to the FTC. And so there's really, again, they have unlimited discretion as to whether they want to take action here or not. And there's no you know clear timeline that, you know, as to when they will take action and when, if ever, we will know. I mean, it's possible they could be having correspondence with Tyson that we don't even know about. Mm. And so, unfortunately, yeah, there's just a lot of, we can't say exactly what or if anything will happen next, but we're still hopeful that the FTC will take action and they will ultimately decide that they want to further investigate this and even set up a meeting with us and our our clients where we can discuss our complaints further and then what what happens that that's how they usually will proceed is they'll set up such a meeting if they want to take further action and then set up another meeting with the advertiser and then uh, make a decision about how they're going to proceed and i think we talked a little bit about remedies in general but assuming everything goes as well as can be expected what kind of remedies do you expect to be applied here i think in, typically you know in in most cases, you know, as long as the advertiser is willing to budge, which, you know, could be the case here, I think the, the agency will say that, you know, they were satisfied with the changes that, you know, the company made. And basically, the, the clear implication being that there were problems, they needed to be addressed, and they were addressed. We, you know, we always hope that's what happens where we want, we want the companies that we are, you know, suing or taking action against to actually stop doing what they're doing. And I think that's, you know, typically the most likely outcome in in claims before the FTC. But in egregious cases where the company does not want to budge and insists on continuing to make the false claims, the FTC may actually take legal action, file file a lawsuit seeking, uh, you know, monetary penalties. And what about attorney's fees? Do you have any potential to to get paid for for all of this enormous amount of work that's been put in? No, unfortunately not. Um, there is no attorney's fees because, again, you know, we are just acting kind of as uh, noble bystanders here <laughs> that are providing information to the FTC for them to bring. They're, they're the lawyers here for the purpose of an FTC action. Right. And we're just providing them with information. The same way I wouldn't get attorney's fees if I told a, a local DA that they need to prosecute somebody for killing them. Yeah, that does make, uh, I'm sure that that cuts down dramatically on the amount of complaints they get and the amount of effective complaints they get. But I'm really glad you brought this one. And there's a lot going on here. And I hope it gets more press and and that people find out what's really going on and, and expose some of these lies. So unless you have anything else to add, I just want to thank you for, for telling us about it. It's a really fascinating case. No, I think that covers it. And yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Jay. 
So thanks so much for joining us on the Animal Law Podcast. We'll be back next month with a new show. Thank you to Jay Schuster for taking the time to delve into these matters with us. And thank you to Jen Riley and Jared Gleckel for their help in producing the podcast. In the meantime, if you like what you hear, please subscribe. You can do that on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcatcher. And also, please consider leaving us a good review on Apple Podcasts. That's how people find it. Uh, And if you're able, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at OurHenHouse.org. Thanks so much for tuning in. And please, be safe and for heaven's sake, vote. Find out more about your state's requirements at Vote.org.